The text for this morning's sermon is Philippians 2, the verses 14 to 16. And in connection with that, um, I'd like to read also from Psalm 106, which I neglected to send into the liturgy, but Psalm 106, the verses 1 to 33, which provides some more Old Testament background to Paul's words. So Psalm 106, the verses 1 to 33. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor favor you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. When they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. A fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents, and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. 
They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. And then turning ahead to the New Testament, we'll read together from Philippians chapter 2, the verses 1 to 16. And our text begins at verse 14. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem each other better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, We live in a culture which is known for its grumbling and arguing, for its complaining. And it seems that as our society has become more and more affluent, as we've increased our standard of living and life expectancy, we've also seen an increase in the number of things we have to complain about. And so you can hear people complaining about traffic or lineups in stores. You can hear people complain about 
the condition of their vehicle or their house. And in some, in some ways, the complaining culture of the society around us is surely linked to a loss of trust in God. Because God is no longer recognized as the sovereign provider who works all things for the good of those who love him. He's no longer recognized as the creator of heaven and earth. And yet, even among Christians who do confess God's providence and and sovereignty, we can also find plenty of complaining and grumbling and arguing. I'm sure that we've all grumbled in the past about certain life circumstances. We've all grumbled and complained about certain people who were in our lives. We've all argued and disputed about different topics, some of which were minor, some of which were major. And yet the message that Paul brings to the Philippians and that the Spirit brings to us as well is to live lives without complaining, without any grumbling, without any disputing or arguing. The way that we speak of different events and circumstances in our lives It reveals an attitude that we have towards God. It reveals whether we truly trust that God has all things under his control. And whether we truly believe that he works all things for our good, even those little mundane things that we have to deal with. And so I bring to you the word of the Lord under the following theme. Live as children of God. And we'll see, first of all, the command, then the fruits, and finally, the harvest. Now here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul has instructed the believers to do everything without grumbling, without complaining. And this command of Paul is built upon the previous sentence where Paul commanded them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And after this general command, he moves on to a specific example of what working out this salvation with fear and trembling will look like. And what is crucial for their obedience as they grow in their faith. And so he tells, he's, he's telling them, this is how you work out what God is working within you. Do all things without complaining or arguing. Because if the Philippians are focused on working out their salvation, and if they have an attitude of fear or reverential awe towards God, they won't be wasting their time complaining or disputing about God's will and God's word. With the correct attitude, their time and energy will instead be focused on God and on their brothers and sisters. Now the the complaining that Paul speaks of, it refers to those simple things we might utter under our breath or behind someone's back. Those times... We might quietly complain about the tasks that we have to do, but we really just don't want to. 
And then we have those, those arguments, those disputes between believers, those debates that we might have with those around us. And Paul knows that when the Philippians are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, they will keep themselves from becoming like the complaining Israelites in the wilderness. He, he knows that they won't be like Israel who lost their fear very quickly and who were continually complaining against Moses and against God, who were complaining, who were continually arguing with one another. We read of some of that this morning in Psalm 106, and we sang also of how God punished one group of rebels even with the pre-service song this morning. We read of how God punished one group of rebels and the very next day the people rose up and once again were grumbling against the Lord. God had been constantly working miracles before the eyes of the Israelites. And perhaps the most obvious example of of this was that God each day in the desert was providing them with food from heaven. And yet the Israelites, they quickly forgot who God was and what he had and was doing for them. To be sure, there were times when they were indeed afraid of God, when they had a reverent fear. We can think of Mount Sinai, where when God descended and when the Israelites saw the thunder and the lightning, they were filled with fear and they asked Moses to speak with God on their behalf. But those times of of fear, they were short-lived and grumbling, complaining, and and disputing soon resumed. In many ways, we aren't different. We aren't much different than Israel. If we were to rank sins, I suspect that complaining or, or grumbling wouldn't make most of our lists. Often we think and behave as if we have the right to grumble about anything and everything. And this is perhaps more true in a democratic society where the people are are called by their government to evaluate the government, to evaluate the authorities. But then what happens is we begin to think that we are above the authorities. And that plays out into all realms of life. And so it's important to keep in mind that when we complain and when we argue about God's providence, about the things that God has brought into our lives, whether it's the authorities he has placed over us or whether it's the events that occur in our lives, we are in fact committing a sin against the Lord who ordained those things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, now these things occurred, that's the things that occurred to to Israel, now these things occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. 
So how serious then is the sin of grumbling and complaining? Well, it's serious enough that Paul writes that because the Israelites were constantly and habitually complaining against God, God punished them with death. Paul mentions the continual grumbling of the Israelites as one of the reasons that God did not allow that generation to enter the promised land, but instead their bodies were scattered across the wilderness. So Paul, throughout the New Testament, is emphatic that we go through life without grumbling or arguing senselessly with one another or against God. When we constantly grumble or complain, we run the risk of rebelling in the same way that Israel did. And the Israelites, they they could have said to themselves, or they could have responded to God by saying, we're not rebelling against you, we're rebelling or we're talking to Moses. And today we might use a similar line of reasoning. We might try to defend ourselves by saying, We're grumbling against our boss or our spouse, against our parents or against the government, against our elders. And yet God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is sovereign and determines what happens in our lives. And so when we grumble or complain because of the events or people in our lives, we're ultimately grumbling and complaining against the Lord and what He has ordained to occur. And when we do this, when we accuse God of treating us unfairly and forget the many blessings He has given us, we behave as rebels. And the habitual grumbling of Israel, the complaining of of Israel is linked to their rebellion. It's linked to the hardening of their hearts. It showed that they were losing their confidence in the one who had redeemed them from Egypt. That they did not truly trust that he was still able to provide for them now. And so we too need to to take this lesson of Israel to heart. And we need to resist the habit of, of grumbling and complaining. We know also that the sin of complaining impacts our relationships with those around us. When we grumble and argue, we break down the unity that is meant to exist in the church, even as we sang from Psalm 133 this morning. The argue, arguments create an environment of discouragement, an an environment of discontent. And we color the opinions of others also when we speak poorly about our brothers and sisters. And if there's one thing about complaining, it's that complaining can quickly color the attitude of an entire congregation. It can spread throughout the entire congregation and become like a disease, a disease a disease that blinds us to God's love and His goodness for His people. 
And if our complaints hurt God's people, and if they blind them to his goodness, how much more won't our complaints blind those who don't even know about God? Why would your coworker or your neighbor believe that Christ has changed your life? Why would your coworker or or neighbor believe that our God is a God of love, a father to his children? If he or she is hearing you complain constantly about how tough things are for you, Instead, Paul and the Holy Spirit, they call us to remember the mighty acts of God. We're called to remember the one who has created us and who has redeemed us. We're called to remember the one who has adopted us to be his children even while we were still enemies of God. We're called to remember how he has promised to avert all evil or turn it to our benefit. And so instead of behaving as if God is treating us unfairly, we have the wondrous privilege of recalling the immense love that God has shown to us. Now, to be clear, there there is a proper way that we can bring our complaints and our laments before the Lord. And the Psalms, they, they give us many pictures of the saints of the Old Testament doing just this. The Psalms, they teach us that we can boldly seek God's face, that we can seek God's face in prayer, that we can lay our hearts before Him, that we can ask him to change our circumstances. And those petitions in in the Psalms, they so frequently begin by acknowledging who God is and what he has done. They glorify God for his mighty acts and, and then they pray, the saints, they pray that God would once again act in that way. That he would once again act on behalf of his people and save them from the situation that they are in. Now Moses, Moses, the the leader of the Israelites while they were in the wilderness, he also didn't have the perfect attitude towards God's people. He grumbled and complained about the Israelites. And he lost sight that he was called to mediate and intercede on behalf of Israel. And in at least one instance, as we read from Psalm 106, Moses also lost his fear of the Lord. And he disobeyed God by striking the rock with his staff. And none of us have the perfect attitude either. We've all complained at times and sinned against our God in that way. And what it shows us is that we need a mediator who is better than simply another human being. We need Jesus and Jesus Christ. Because as the perfect mediator, Christ entered this world laying aside his glory 
And he did so to fulfill God's sovereign good pleasure. He did so without any complaining or arguing. He humbled himself by taking on human flesh. And he took on the form of a bondservant to do the will of his father in perfect obedience. So that even when his disciples abandoned him, while he was being tried and whipped and crucified, he didn't grumble about how much he had to suffer. Instead, he prayed to the Father and submitted to his will. And so, because of Christ's work, we don't have to fear that God will destroy us for our sins. Instead, we can rest on the promise that they've all been forgiven on account of Christ. Christ took upon himself the sins of Israel, and he took upon himself our sins as well. He suffered and died for our complaining, for our arguing. He suffered and died for our lack of trust, for our moments of weakness, for those times when we don't truly put our faith fully in God and trust in his sovereign will. And Christ's perfect obedience, it's also now being counted as our own obedience. And he is working in all those who have placed their faith in him by his Spirit. The Spirit who points us to the proper way to live before God. The way to live in, with a thankful heart, with a grumble-free, complaint-free life. The Spirit who shows us how to live with the attitude of Christ Jesus himself. It's our union with Christ that urges us on to continue growing in our faith and in our love. It's our union with Christ which brings us to take on the same attitude of Christ Jesus. Through Christ we're moved to take on that same trust in God's sovereign providence. And so God works in us to make us holy and and blameless before him. And that brings us to our, our second point, the fruit. In verse 15, Paul shows the, the fruit that results from this Christ-like attitude, from following the command that Paul gives here. Paul writes that, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And here Paul is doing some some wordplay on Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. In that passage, Moses writes as he's instructed by, by the Lord, Israel has dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. 
And Paul basically takes that verse from the Old Testament and adds a bit of a twist to it. He says that Israel was blemished, but you are unblemished. Israel lost their status as children, but you have been adopted as children. Israel was a crooked and twisted generation, but you are as lights in the world or stars in the sky. And so Paul takes the attitude of Israel and he applies it to the world around the Philippians. The people of God are his children and the people of the world are a crooked and twisted or corrupt and perverted generation. The children of God are blameless and obedient, but the world follows in the footsteps of the Israelites. The Israelites who grumbled against God in the wilderness and denied the truth of Jesus Christ. So while we might be born in and, and live in a crooked and twisted world, we are called to live differently than the twisted world around us. And we can do this because God is the one who straightens what is crooked. He called the Philippians and he calls us as well to turn from the old way of life and instead to live as the blameless and innocent children of God. And the phrase, blameless and innocent, or blameless and and harmless, it means being without fault, being above reproach in every way. Being like the purest of of metals or like an undiluted wine. Paul is emphasizing that there is a sense in which believers have already begun to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit and how they are already now able to in part keep the law of God despite the sin and weakness that remains in them. So while we might be surrounded by those living contrary to the will of God, our calling is to be blameless, not causing those around us to stumble or be offended by our actions and our attitudes. We're supposed supposed to live in such a way that if those around us were to examine our lives, we would be found innocent and harmless without any fault. There's a second fruit from living without grumbling or or arguing that appears in this passage. And that's that those around us can see by our behavior that something is different about us. They can see that we are children of God. Paul encourages the believers in Philippi and us as well with the assurance that we are God's children that we have been adopted through Christ. And that living in a complaint-free way is a way in which we can all please our Father in heaven. And this, this... adoption that has occurred, this being called children of God, it would have been striking to the Philippian believers and it should be striking to us as well. 
Because for thousands of years, the people of God were almost exclusively ethnically Jewish. And yet with the coming of Christ, the way has now been opened up that those who are not Jews can join with the people of God, that the, God, the Gentiles as well can be adopted as children of God. So that everyone, whether Jew or Greek, would be included by faith among the people, the children of God. Now believers, believers are being renewed more and more by God's Spirit so that we stand as children of God in a broken world. Because of His renewing work, when we set aside our grumbling and arguing, and when we instead seek to adopt the right attitudes, to put on the right attitudes, to carry out the right actions and speech, we will be pure before both God and men. We will be unblemished. Or as it says here, I guess it's the word harmless again in this passage, that we'll be unblemished. We will stand before God without any fault. We'll be like the, the animals that Israel were were called to bring before the Lord as part of their offerings. We'll be like those animals who didn't have any birth defects or other results of the fall that made them unclean and unable to be used as a sacrifice before God. In a a similar way that the Israelites brought these unblemished animals before God as part of their sacrifice, so we as God's New Testament children, we're presenting ourselves as holy and unblemished. We're presenting ourselves as sacrifices before God. Sacrifices that are pleasing in God's sight as we live our lives out of thankfulness for what He has done. Another fruit of this Christ-like attitude is that as we stand as children of God, we also stand out. We shine as lights or stars in a lost and sinful world. We stand united in love for God and for each other. And this love for God and this love for each other is an important part of our witness to a fallen world. It's a world that the believer is in the midst of, that the world is all around the believer, and yet we aren't called to cut ourselves off from the world, but instead fight and engage with the messiness of this world. We're lights shining in the darkness. Lights which show the world a better way to live. Which point to humility, unity, and love in Christ rather than pride, infighting, and complaining. And here again we see that what we are in fact doing is following in Christ's footsteps. 
After all, he is the great light that entered into the world. The Apostle John wrote that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ's light has pierced the darkness of this world. It's pierced the darkness of our own hearts. Christ's light continues to expose us to our sin so that more and more we would radiate and reflect the light of Christ which shines within us. So Christ taught that those who follow him are indeed the light of the world. He taught that just as a city on a hill can't be hidden, just as a lighthouse on a cliff can be seen from far away, so we also are to shine as lights or stars before those who are lost, so that they too would glorify God. And this is what God predicted in the Old Testament. Yet the prophet Isaiah wrote that God's people would bring light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so we can confess with Paul that we are also sent to open their eyes so that they, that's those who do not believe, might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That brings us then to our final point, the harvest. In the first part of verse 16, the theme of evangelism is continued by Paul. In the ESV and in the New King James Version as well, it speaks of holding fast the word of life, or In the ESV, it's even stronger, holding fast to the word of life. And the implication of that translation is that Paul is speaking of perseverance and endurance, that you cling to it because without it you would be lost. But another way of understanding this is that you're holding forth the word of life. And this translation is to be preferred because Paul isn't really talking about endurance here, but about evangelism, about holding forth. He's alluding to Daniel 12, verse 3, where the prophet wrote that the wise and those who bring others to righteousness will shine like lights or stars in the sky. And previously in the letter of letter to the Philippians, Paul has praised the Philippians for their partnership with him in the gospel ministry. He's praised them for their work in helping Paul reach out to the lost and the wandering. And here Paul continues them to hold forth the word of life in their own context. And this word of life that they are to hold forth is simply the gospel It's the word which gives or produces eternal life. The life that the Christian already possesses through faith in Christ. And that which we call others to also share in. 
It's, it is life in, in Christ which begins in the present as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, in which we live without complaining or arguing with one another, in which we endure suffering but it's a life which is far more than just the life that we experience on this earth. It's the never-ending and glorious life that we will share with Christ in the new heaven and earth. And so Paul's point is that we are to hold forth this glorious life of the gospel as the main way to shine out, to shine in the world. We bring the word of life with compassion, with love and humility, just as we are taught by Christ and just as Christ himself exemplified to us. And as the gospel progresses through the work of the Spirit, those who receive this gospel and acknowledge Christ as their Lord, who place their faith in him alone, they too will have their names written in the book of life, along with all of their fellow believers. And that's the hope or pride which Paul can speak of in the second half of verse 16. So that Paul can rejoice in the day of Christ that he has not run in vain or labored in vain. And it seems almost strange that Paul, he seems to be rejoicing in his own work. In, it seems to be saying that Paul is rejoicing in what he has done. Seems a bit boastful. And yet Paul, he has just argued quite compellingly for the need of, for humility in the Christian life. He set Christ's example as an example Christ's example of putting aside his glory and taking on human flesh as the greatest example of humility that we could ever have. And he calls the Philippians and us to follow that example. Yet here, Paul makes it clear that he wants to have an opportunity to boast on that day. So how can he claim to boast now? Well, the fact is that Paul is not referring here to a, a prideful attitude. But Paul's pride, Paul's ability to boast, would instead be based on the faithfulness of the Philippians. Paul's boasting would be based on their own godly conduct. The conduct that's brought about by God himself. And what Paul wants to do is to have the opportunity to rejoice that his effort, that all the work that he has toiled for throughout the years has not been in vain, that it has not been for nothing. He wants to see that his desire to be of use in the service of Christ has been fulfilled. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul makes that point very clearly. In that context, Paul is speaking of other ministers and other preachers and how the church was divided and how they were claiming to follow one particular preacher. And Paul responds by saying, What then is Paul? What then is Apollos? 
servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. With the Philippians persevering in the ministry of the gospel, with the Philippians continuing to hold out the word of life to lost sinners, Paul will be able to boast at Christ's return that he did not work in vain. The gospel changes lives, and when you fully understand your salvation, it motivates you to spread the good news of salvation to others, to see others having that same passion for the gospel that Paul had, and that he desired the Philippians to have, and that he rejoiced in seeing that the Philippians did indeed have. On the day of Christ, Paul wants to see that God has richly blessed his work also through his suffering. That God had used Paul to produce a rich harvest by means of his humble servant. And so, brothers and sisters, we too are called to hold forth the word of life to those around us, to our co-workers, to our friends, to our employers and employees. We're called to live out this hope that Paul had, the same desire that our own Christian walk of life would not be in vain. The gospel of life and love has been given to us, but it has not been given to us so that we would keep that gospel to ourselves. It's been given to us so that we would also be able to spread the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere that we go, even right to the ends of the earth. And while this is a task and a privilege that's given to us, we also acknowledge that from beginning to end, the work of the gospel is the work of God alone. That it's only by His blessing and His renewing Spirit that we are able to work out our salvation. That we are able to cease from all of our arguments and complaints. And that we are able to continue holding out the gospel. It's in this way that we, with Paul, can boast before the Lord. Not a prideful boast about ourselves, but a joyful rejoicing about the work which Christ has done in our own lives and how he has gathered to himself people from all over this world. How he has gathered them into one body and united them in a common faith. Amen.